Genesis 42, verse 9. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them, and said to them, You are spies. You have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. Welcome to Walking Through the Book. I'm Stephen McCrary. And I'm Bryant Bales. And today we'd like to talk with you about the Bible. Specifically, we want to discuss Genesis 42 today. Walking Through the Book is all about these three things. We want to encourage Bible reading, to demonstrate proper and responsible study of the Bible, and we want to emphasize what the Bible text says no more and no less. We want to have a program that is specifically about how much we should revere and appreciate and honor the scriptures that have been preserved and written down, uh, we believe, by the Lord God. And uh, Bryant, uh, we're not physically together, but uh, we are together over the internet. Really thankful for your time today. Absolutely. Before we do start, though, we do want to let you know how to get in touch with us. You can find us on Facebook. You can search for at Walking Through the Book. You'll find us there very easily. You can even message us on there or post to that page. You can also email us at walkingthroughthebook at protonmail.com. And you can find this podcast and other podcasts at northcolumbuschristians.com. That's the website of the congregation that I work and worship with here in Columbus, Mississippi. Uh, That is uh, the North Columbus Church of Christ. And uh, we're right on the corner, uh, not right on the corner, very close to the corner of uh, Blue Cut Road and Highway 45. We'd be glad to see you and uh, welcome any visitors that would like to come by and just see what we're all about. Uh, Bryant, why don't you go over the flow of the program and let everybody know how to get in touch with you. So I work as uh, an evangelist with the Garden City Church of Christ in uh, Savannah, Georgia, uh, on the coast here on the east side of Georgia. And uh, if you want to find the website for the congregation where I attend and worship, uh, it's gardencitycoc.org. But we are pretty close to updating that website and probably having a different domain name. Um, we may, I think we may still own that domain name even when we transfer the website. But um, I'll, I'll mention that once we actually get that, that all up and running. Um, but we also have a Facebook page. And if you just look up Garden City Church of Christ on Facebook, you'll find it. Um, we'd love to have you in the area and um, show you some hospitality if you're ever visiting or vacationing or passing through. We just would really treasure um, time time with you if you're uh, able to. Um, and then as far as flow of the program, so the way that we do this uh, do this study, if you're joining us for the first time, is very simple. Like Stephen has already said, uh, we're really just trying to, um, we're trying to get as much as we can out of simply reading and thinking about the text as it, as it flows very naturally. And so we're going to read Genesis 42 and then just talk about some initial observations on things that uh, stuck out to us, maybe that we haven't thought about before, or maybe things we have and um, just kind of 
uh, struck us in a fresh way. Uh, then we'll talk about themes. If we're able to notice anything that seems to connect uh, to the overall story of Genesis or the story of the Bible, to Christ, to the church, to the character of God. And then we always try to uh, wrap up every episode with making some applications from the text as well that uh, you, the listener, and, and we as well can, can try to really take with us. Very good. Well, with uh, nothing else, I'll be reading Genesis 42 out of the New King James Version. Genesis 42. When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there, that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, Lest some calamity befall him. And the sons of Israel went out to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. Then he said to them, Where do you come from? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them, and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, No, my lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. But he said to them, No, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, Your servants are twelve brothers the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I spoke to you, saying you are spies. In this manner you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you, and let him bring your brother, and you shall be kept in prison, that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison three days. Then Joseph said to them the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house. But you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? 
Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. But they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter, and he turned himself away from them and wept. Then he returned to them again and talked with them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain, to restore every man's money to his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. Thus he did for them. So they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed from there. But as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money, and there it was in the mouth of his sack. So he said to his brothers, My money has been restored, and there it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed them, and they were afraid, saying to one another, What is this that God has done to us? Then they went to Jacob their father in the land of Canaan and told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man who is lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, We are honest men, we are not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is with our father this day in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the lord of the country, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me, take food for the famine of your households, and be gone. And bring your youngest brother to me, so I shall know that you are not spies, but that you are honest men. I will grant your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. Then it happened as they emptied their sacks that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob their father said to them, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more, Simeon is no more, and you want to take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. So with the initial observations section, we want to look at the things that jumped out at us in that text and consider uh, the importance of these things. We want to keep the focus uh, fairly close to this chapter and maybe expand into Genesis a little bit, of course, to follow the narrative. But that's about as far as we're, we're going to go with this section. Brian, what are some things that uh, popped out at you during that text, uh, textual turn during that reading? <laughs> yeah, so what? What I guess sticks out to me is just how interesting everything in this story is. Like, um, uh, like we talked a little bit earlier, I guess before this recording, about how amazing all of these all of these events are. Um, it's like everything is so dramatic and emotional and intense and urgent. I just I feel like you really get carried into the story, you know, in the flow of the story. Like you wanna you really want to see it reach some kind of resolution or climax. Yeah. This is like a, this is like a, a third season episode of a, of a show that's very serialized and you know, the characters 
and you know that they've had this right. previous history and you're just sort of on the edge of the seat, your seat kind of wondering, well, what's going to happen next? It, it is kind of thrilling in that right. way. Yeah, I feel like if I was not familiar with this story and it got to the point where like you hear about the famine, and you're like, oh, man. And then the brothers of Joseph come and bow themselves to the ground and you're like, oh, and then Joseph, you know, decides to be harsh with them and disguise himself. And you're like, wow, this, whoa, you know, I feel like every part of it is just so suspenseful. Yeah. I tell people that like, you're not going to find uh, typically, I don't think you're going to find a, a good adapt- adaptation of uh, a Bible story, uh, mainly because and, they, they yeah. change too much for it to really be <laughs> worth anything to me personally. But, um, you know, you can make a pretty interesting film about, about this or whatever. Um, right. It's just, everything is so, it's like, everything is so genuine, you know, mm -hmm. and everything is, it's so real, you know, and how can you, you just, you can't replicate it properly, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's part of it is that you, you want to feel like you want to insert extra drama in there. (laughs) And, uh, I was, it's funny, like I was showing Bryant while he was here, I've got a, a game called uh, Five Warriors of David. I think that's what it's called. But you, it's like a role-playing game and you play as the, some of David's mighty men. And uh, there's a whole, there's, there was even a note that like they had added this one character for the, to add some drama to the game. And I'm just thinking, well, <laughs> okay. Uh, if you just take the text as it is and, and go with that, then that's actually better. It's kind of like what, what, you know, uh, truth is stranger than fiction. Um, anyway, I, oh, yeah. Yeah. we're, we're kind of getting off, off topic here. Um, Joseph has pretty amazing grace and mercy upon his brothers. You know, why doesn't he just simply command them to be put to death? I mean, he's got the power, he's got the place right. that he can do yeah. that. You know, that's kind of what I wonder. Well, that's so interesting. Like, it seems like Joseph immediately wants to draw things out of their hearts. Like he wants, he wants to get them thinking and reflecting and like, he wants to discover where they are spiritually. And I think that's so thoughtful and interesting. It is absolutely. And as you say, I mean, his brother's bowing down to them. And then uh, literally in verse nine, Joseph remembered the dreams, which he had dreamed about them. And uh, it's it's with mm. that thought that he's like, okay, oh. this is coming true. What God has shown me is yeah. is right before me. Right. And so is he is he testing the situation? Is he saying, you know, I'm going to really see what's happening? I I, I don't know. I, I wonder if like his his confidence that by the grace of God he's gotten to where he is. The dream has been has now found some form of fulfillment. I wonder if just the the peace of that has subdued any sense within him that he needs to pay them back. You know, like I wonder if there's, there's something within him that he wants them to join the exaltation God has given Mm -hmm. him and wants to work that out. But also at the same time, there's this, this hard to say, like when, Man, it's hard to say this without jumping into a theme. So I'm gonna I'm gonna restrict what I was just about to say, but I don't know. Just I feel like there's so much that goes into Joseph being able to think 
more about this in a very almost third person kind of way Mm -hmm. because of the satisfaction of everything that God had given him. So like what I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I feel like Joseph doesn't need to feel like he has to do anything himself anymore. Like there's no need to feel like, well, I'm missing something that these guys have taken away from me and they need to pay me back. It's like, no, he's gotten everything. He's got the highest position in Egypt. He's been given grace by God. It's like, what more could he possibly Mm. need? So there's nothing his brothers can give him anymore. You know, there's nothing, there's no gift or treasure or kindness. And I feel like that, that equips Joseph to think differently about this. Yeah. And it it also kind of jumped out at me that, you know, what's the brother's reaction to something that really would be good. You know, they expected to spend this money for grain, but now they have the grain and the money. Right. But the reaction is that they're terrified. That's, that's interesting. <laughs> and, and I think for good reason. I mean, the, one of the most powerful forces yeah. in the world at that time and, uh, and somehow their money is still in their sacks and they don't really know how, and, and who, who are they putting this at the feet of, you know, they're asking, in verse 28, what is this that God has done to us? Uh, it's kind of fascinating to me. Yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. Just that's such a brilliant scheme. I mean, like clever, I don't know. Just, yeah, it's so clever. If, if it wasn't that way, like I would never think that that story could have happened this way. So it's just like, it's perfect. There's no better way to have done any of this to get to where the book is going. I totally agree, man. Um, it, it, it is kind of really amazing the behavior of Joseph here. Now, I mean, again, we have to have this discussion of, well, isn't Joseph being duplicitous with his brothers? Why doesn't he just tell them who he is immediately? And, uh, you know, I think there's reasons for that. Um, and I think there are ways that we can understand in the greater picture of what's going on. And I think we've already kind of covered that, that, there is an aspect of testing. I do want to focus. I do want to ask that question in the application section of, uh, are there times for us to test others in this same basis to not immediately, uh, welcome Hmm. and hold on to others? Um, you know, to, to have that mind that's not saying it's not out of a lack of love, but it's out of a simple concern about where is this person? And maybe we can sort of answer that question later on. But regardless, uh, it is kind of amazing that we see all this uh, coming together. It's interesting. Um, verse 24, when it says he turned away from them and wept, I think that's interesting. You know, like it gives us a deeper insight into what's going on with Joseph. I just think that's that's an interesting detail. It really shows how hard this all was and it reveals that he wasn't speaking in malice against them he was doing something that was very emotionally difficult for him to do oh yes i, I can't imagine how hard this was to right to go through all yeah, this clearly love them dearly yeah yeah to go through what he went through and then like to not really i mean there's something in him that knows that he, he has to hold back at least for the time being. Right. Mm. Wow. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. 
the three days thing is interesting, and it's always interesting to note when there's a notation right. of three days between one event and some fulfillment or change. That's always interesting to note. Um, something else jumped out to, at to me too in verse 16 and 17. I don't know if you have any thoughts on this. I literally just don't know what to think about it. Um, in verse 16, Joseph says, uh, send one of you to get your brother while everyone else remains confined. But then in verse 17, he put them all in prison. And then after three days, he says, okay, let's change the plan. I'll just keep one of you and the rest of you go home. Do you have any idea like why the change, why the initial plan wasn't what happened? I really don't, except uh, maybe he was trying to just be really harsh with them at first. But, you know, see, that's the thing. Like his mm. words are rough with them, but he's actually very like considerate of them. And he, he's very caring about them in his actions. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, there's nothing that he does yeah. against them. That's, that's yeah. necessarily bad. Yeah. You know, maybe you could claim them being put in prison is right. rough, but I mean, they survive. Obviously it's not like he puts them in a, in a, in a death prison. Uh, and he himself, I mean, he survived prison. He knows what's, he knows what's that, what that's like. So, uh, so obviously he's not doing anything yeah. to them that's wrong. I think he's a sense where he's trying to shock them. Right. It seems like he's trying to shock mm, them into some sort good, of awareness. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> and and sometimes we, sometimes we all need that. No, that's really good. <laughs> no, that's good because like really, I, I I think the way you were saying that is really really helpful because it was making me think a lot about some of the things that they say. Like because they don't ever in this whole account say who does this guy think he is to treat us this way. Yeah, yeah. You know what? Like they they never accuse him of anything like they always just reflect on themselves or are afraid or remember their own guilt like they they never once question his right to treat them these ways you know he's the one who's the ruler he's the one with the right he can treat them any way he wants to i I think that's interesting that they accept everything he does yeah that's exactly how they refer to him too in verse 30 the man who is lord of the land right he is the lord of the land that that he he right. has the control and they're they're recognizing that. Very well said. And it's interesting. Um, I guess last observation is Jacob and Reuben. Like Reuben twice speaks here. We get verse twenty two where he says, you know, you know, he's like, I told you guys, you know, don't sin against the boy, and you wouldn't listen. Now comes the reckoning for his blood. And then verse thirty seven, you know, Reuben says put my two sons to death if I do not bring him back. And it's like, whoa, Hmm. wow. Like, I don't know, just Ruben, there's just such a, what's, what's the way to say it? It's just so much guilt in his heart. You know, he just, he cares about, he cares about the situation not turning out to weary his father further so much, you know, risking his two sons you know, and then Jacob saying like, no, this isn't, this isn't going to happen. You know, if, if, if anything else happens, you know, I'm going to die in sorrow, you know, so it's just, you can just yeah. feel like a boiling pot of, of frustration and emotion, you know, yeah, you can feel, you can hear the anguish in his voice and the tension yeah. and, yeah. and how, you know, I've already lost so much. I can't lose anymore. Or I'll be broken. <laughs> and that's kind of, you know. Uh, yeah. Should my you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave? So basically, he's telling me, right. "Take Benjamin. I'm going to die of sadness." And uh, right, 
You know, uh, I don't know. I don't know what to make of that, except that, you know, obviously Jacob is up against a wall here in the sense that anything too, when a land is going through a famine, it's going to be a much more tense situation. You know, um, when, when someone yeah. is physically hungry, they're going to be a lot less reasonable. Right. And it's just it's right. going to be a lot more of a tense, uh, kind of way to live. And, uh, you know, you think back to people that lived through the great depression in here in the United States, you know, uh, 60 or 70 years ago, uh, that produced a pretty tough generation that was not very, you know, soft and easy. Uh, they're pretty, a lot of, a lot of tough people came out of those hard times. And, uh, I, maybe that's not an apt comparison, but I mean, I, I would say that that might be part of what's going on, but that that's, that's merely speculation. But we do know that Jacob, uh, you know, Jacob, has been through a hard life already. And so I think we can have uh, some compassion upon him because of that. Right. Yeah. And I think the way I read verse 38 as well, I picture him like basically screaming everything he's saying in verse 33 and pointing and with, you know, with tears in his eyes, you know, and, 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 and and just looking carefully at what he says, you know, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he alone is left. <laughs> you know, he really makes it sound like, you know, none of you matter to me. You know, if, if Benjamin dies, like, that's it. That's all I have, yeah. you know. And you just imagine how hurt they could all feel hearing him say that, you know. Yeah, yeah I don't. That tells us something about his opinion about his other sons. <laughs> and uh and oh, I don't, yeah. I don't think it's yeah. positive. Yeah. Um, yeah. And which, you know, again, can you blame him? He doesn't have a whole lot of winners there. Um, and especially <laughs> when he's lost, he's lost someone like Joseph, who was a good kid, was a good worker, you know, um, just a good boy. And now he's got another, you know, boy that's left to him. And ostensibly, Benjamin is sort of a, you know, replacement in that sense for Joseph, but it's just not the same. Um, right. So yeah, just really, really interesting to note the heartache in, in Jacob with that man. And just think about this. Like they've been living in perpetual guilt and anger the whole time. God has been helping Joseph in Egypt, you know, like they've been just simmering with unresolved guilt. That's just gotten worse and worse. And, you know, there's, there's just no way they can make it up to Jacob. He's just been, Jacob's been an emotional mess the whole time. And you can just imagine just the deep sense of growing tension in their family relationships, you know, just because that's, that's all something that as much as they would try to communicate with each other and be normal, like unresolved guilt that affects everyone when, when everyone is sharing in that and there's no way for that to be changed you know, or the frustration that, that Jacob has, I mean, that that's has to have been just really eating away at their family dynamics the whole time. Right. All 
right, so in our theme section, of course, we want to consider the greater picture of things, to consider what's going on in the uh, overarching themes of the Bible, and uh, obviously as it relates to this story. And uh, Brian, what were some things that really uh, uh, seemed to connect for you? I know it seems that it, it seems like uh, sometimes it seems like everywhere we look through a chapter, there there are multiple things. But you know, I saw a few things here. Mm. But I, I'd like to know your thoughts. I think one in just the beginning of forty-two, uh, there being grain in Egypt specifically, and like they had to go and and seek the grain in Egypt. Uh, kind of reminds me in, oh, what chapter is it? Sorry, I'm turning there on the fly. Uh, Luke 11, uh, especially verse 31, the queen of Sheba, uh, the queen of the south, who came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Um, Mm mm-hmm. I wonder if there's an idea like when people heard about Jesus, they would travel great distances to find him, you know? Mm-hmm. And I wonder if there's I wonder if there's like a, a a type of how in Jesus it's evident that there's only life in Jesus. And if I really understand that and, and you see evidence of people understanding that in his lifetime and in the book of Acts. Like, I will do whatever it takes, even just hearing about the life in Jesus or hearing like the rumor. Because the queen of the queen of Sheba in first Kings, like she just heard the rumor of Solomon's wisdom. She hadn't actually seen anything or seen any evidence of his wisdom. She just heard some things. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have any more thoughts on on that type at all? No, I think I think that's spot on. And, and really, I mean, of course, I'm thinking of the fact that there were so many that went out to see John the Baptist and they yeah, that's a good point. weren't going right. into convenient places. Uh, it was out of their way to go see and hear John. And in fact, John himself, he wasn't uh, a smooth dressed, uh, smooth talking kind of guy. It seems from the gospels that he was sort of a wild man. So, uh, you know, there, there's something to be said there. Um, but obviously all these countries that were going to Egypt, they were going for a particular reason, particular purpose. And because there were, they knew there wasn't any other way. They knew yeah. that, that this was really right. the only option right, right. for survival. Yeah. And I wonder if like, that's what simplified things is understanding the urgency, you know? And that's like the Pharisees would treat Jesus, like everything he was doing just didn't make sense, you know, but it's because they didn't see that they needed the life he was giving like, I feel like Jacob could have made so many excuses like, well, it's going to be hard to go to Egypt. You know, we haven't really we haven't been there before. You know, the roads might be dangerous. I'm sure there's just a lot of ways he could have overcomplicated this. But instead, in verse two, he's like, look, I heard there's grain in Egypt. So go there. And I mean, that's really as simple as it needs to be. Right. You know, and I think that's like the same thing with the people who came to Jesus is when they recognized that they needed what he was giving them, everything that he did just made sense to them. Or even if they were challenged by it, they were willing to learn and humble themselves. Amen. Yeah. And, and, it, and it unlocked uh, the possibilities of what they could learn right. and what they could yeah. know. Right. And so in, in, I think, again, another parallel there, the brothers coming there to Egypt, 
resolving to go ahead and follow what Joseph has prescribed. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. I think we may have mentioned this in the previous section. I don't remember if you did or not, but the fact that they don't seem to protest mm, to him. Right. Or really, you know, really did not know we don't need to do right, this. They, right. they go right along with right. it. So yeah, that's interesting. How many brothers would you say 11 brothers are here? Well, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be 10 of them? Cause Benjamin stays yeah. behind. Right. Okay. Okay. I was just trying to, I was trying to think of parallels between that and the apostles. If there were any, um, hmm. Interesting. and maybe there's some, yeah, but, there uh, but you know, the, the, obviously the big, themes that keep coming up. And this is what God continually stressed toward his people was that I am the only source that you have. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I like to bring up the the criticism that God has of his people in the book of Jeremiah, where uh, he says, you know, you've, you've uh, forsaken the fountain of living waters and you've hewn out uh, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And uh, it, it, it's kind of an interesting image when you think about that. It makes no sense. And, and and when you look at this physically, when this moment, you know, what if there was somebody, what if Jacob was saying, no, we don't need to go to Egypt. You know, there's there's no point to this. Mm-hmm. Um, we learn in the greater sense that, that I think this is a type of God offering salvation and any who wants to can come and, and be a part of that. Mm. Uh, now, I mean, it's not a perfect parallel, but you get what I mean. Right. I think I think there is a type here that's going on. And, of course, Joseph is the arbiter of this. Joseph has complete and total control over it, just like Jesus has complete and total control over salvation. Right. I think Joseph hiding his identity from his brothers is interesting, even though he recognized them. Uh, I wonder if there's a parallel to the way that Jesus came in the form of man. And, and I mean, think of how he would continuously address himself as the son of man, you know, and, and people just really struggled to understand who he really truly was, but yet he was content with that and was purposely allowing that. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, no, I, I was actually going to bring that up because uh, because it is pretty clear, and this is this is something that that comes up when you study the Gospels with somebody. You know, you want to ask the question, you want to talk about why is Jesus telling people not to not to say anything about who he is, right, or, right, uh, right, to hold back that. You know, uh, and why does he why does he not allow the unclean spirits, the demons, to share the fact that he is the Holy One of God? Well, you know, there's a, a number of reasons there. But I think primarily the messianic uh, hopes, the political hopes, um, you know, the time was not yet right for that confrontation with the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem yet. And so there was this holding back of that. So maybe, you know, that, that's what I would say is that that's the parallel, obviously. And, and I think you've rightly pointed it out. The question I have is, what is Jacob, uh, what is Joseph thinking at this point to delay the sorting out of all this. And I think we discussed that a little bit in the first, uh, uh, in the first section, because, you know, again, most of this is speculation. So we need to be really careful here, but, um, but really when you think about it, what, what is he trying to do? I, I think there is an aspect where he's trying to prove, uh, what's going on here. 
Uh, Jesus didn't have to prove uh, what was in man. Remember, John chapter 2 tells us that he knew what was in man. He knew the heart of hearts of men. So he didn't need to prove that. I think it was all situational with him. I think for Joseph, it's a sense where he is trying to um, trying to figure out the situation and figure out if these men have learned anything in their time apart. And, you know, Joseph, in some ways, his position has changed, but he's remained the same uh, in the sense that he, uh, again, I think he's the same young man who wore that uh, multicolored clothing, you know, the coat of many colors. I just think his situation has changed. Whereas I think, I think he's trying to figure out what have these brothers of mine, have they learned anything? Are they going to change? Are they going to be different than they were? And, Mm. uh, and and I wonder if part of the reason why he has such mercy on them at the end of the, of Genesis is because, uh, because throughout all of this, they don't really seem to protest very much. They seem to be very accommodating, very graceful to him, even though they don't know who he is. Um, I don't know. That's that's just a little two cents there. What do you think? So I just had something hit me um, as he, as you're talking. Uh, I wonder if Joseph, through compassion, was working to bring them into the exaltation of the vision. Like even though they bowed down to him, he wanted them to share in the rule God had given him. And I wonder if that also typifies that Jesus, it wasn't enough for him to be exalted and to for us to just bow down to him arbitrarily. Because that, that, that really is like what's happened so far. It's like they're just arbitrarily bowing down to him, you know. I wonder if it relates to how Christ's goal is ultimately to make us sharers in the reign. And yes, yes, we must bow down to him. Um, and he's worthy to be even arbitrarily bowed down to. That's just what he's worthy of. But I wonder if because he views us as his brethren, if Jesus, you know, this kind of leads us to see that Jesus's goal the whole time was to get us to reign with him. Hmm. Yeah, that that's kind of an interesting point and an interesting possibility because, again, when we go back to him, dreaming these dreams and sharing them, I think you really have to read a bias into the text to say that Joseph was arrogantly sharing these dreams. Um, I think that other people can mistake, uh, mistake confidence for arrogance. And I think it's possible that that's what happened with, with Joseph's brothers. There's nothing in the text to support that he arrogantly shared these dreams. So maybe he, maybe, maybe all the time, he was sharing those dreams to maybe say, what do you guys think about this and considering these things? And of course there's a great dismissal of that. Hmm. And now maybe he's saying, okay, I'm seeing the fruition of these things. Uh, you know, and, and, and he can't, he can't desire for them to still be up there where there's famine. And, uh, you know, there's seven years of famine. I don't know exactly what year, is there anything in the text to suggest what year this is taking place in of the famine? Not, not that I know of. I, no. I, I don't, I don't see anything that indicates. Um, I, I'm assuming it's 
at least some time into it for the fact that Jacob and his brothers or Jacob and his family have uh, gotten to the breaking point of feeling like they can't provide for themselves anymore. Right. Yeah, that that probably would take a little bit of time. Could be the first year, who knows? But either way, the the point I would make too is that I think Jacob, uh, J- excuse me, Joseph, I think Joseph is trying to engineer a situation where he can get his family, you know, save his family essentially. Right. And in order to do that, uh, he cannot be completely open with his brothers at this time. Right. They needed to discover Joseph's identity under the right condition of heart. And I wonder if that's a part of the ability to bring them into that shared exaltation. And I wonder if that's really a key to the Gospels when Jesus tells certain people to be quiet, you know, is Jesus was the one aware of how to bring people into that condition of heart because he had that condition of heart and he knew their hearts, you know? And so Jesus was very, very thoughtful in working to help people discover his true identity through a certain conviction and condition, not just at the word of someone. And, you know, I feel like sometimes some people proclaiming things freely, Jesus understood would have made it more difficult to discover to discover him in the right thought process. And I, I, anyway, I wonder if that's what's going on with Joseph as well is it's not enough for them to just know it's him. There has to be a, a, a change of heart that happens at the same time. Yeah. No. Yeah. Because here's the thing too about Jesus being the Messiah. Doesn't it seem to you that like through the text that somehow the apostles were able to figure this out on their own without Jesus having to tell them that? Right. Yeah. Yep. yep so yep. they they were able to I mean maybe you could say that 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 uh that John the Baptist made it clear to them. I mean you can make that case, but you know by the time you get to like what is it Matthew 16 where you know you were the Christ the son of the living God, you know Peter recognizes that and he sees that. And, and I think that was the goal. I think you're right that he wanted, he didn't want to just spoon feed this. He wanted people to come to that conclusion on their own. And by coming to that conclusion on their own, it makes it so much more powerful and, and, and real in a way that you learn it. You know, you truly do learn right. it. And, uh, right. and so maybe, maybe there's something here. May, and, and again, don't you think that if we, if we just moralize on whether, you know, uh, we can say, oh, well, this is a problem. He's not being completely honest with him, not being completely open. Well, again, if we spend all our time moralizing about that, we may miss what you and I are talking about right now. Um, right. And, and so I, I think I think we have to take a step back and realize that there in, are indeed times where maybe we need to um, hold back on some information. Let me actually follow up on that. I'm going to follow up on that on the uh, application section, but... Right. Because, I mean, we've talked about that before. We're like the narratives of Genesis aren't meant to be instructions where the people themselves are example of what God approves of or doesn't. And I, I've I've just been thinking a lot about this. And I think this could relate to a theme um, when the Pharisees in Luke chapter six are uh, accusing Jesus and the disciples of breaking the Sabbath for crushing grain in their hands and eating it. Um, Jesus brings up the example of David going into the tabernacle to take the showbread. 
and then he gives it to him to his companions and they eat it um it is wrong to assume that mercy and a lack of accusation on God's part means that he approved of what was being done or was in any way morally okay with it. Right. I think that is a big mistake. Mercy and the use of an action through mercy does not at all infer that the the moral activity itself was approved. It simply means that God is astonishingly merciful and is able to use things that were not ideal to reveal his glory. And I think so much of Genesis is like that. And I, I think we need to extend mercy to people like Joseph and Abraham and even people like, and, and, and maybe I'm wrong for saying this, but even people like Lot and Samson, you know, people where when the New Testament reflects on them says good things, you know, and I, I think I'm just prone to be very unmerciful uh, when I see evil being done um, and I just like focus on that and hound on that or I overreact to uh, God not accusing and say, well, this must be OK, actually. And maybe this means that sometimes deceiving and lying can do good. And I think both of those just radically miss the point. Um, and, and I think like you were saying, there's there's lessons that are through working through the text and how the events play out. I think learning from the text itself and what's happening, I think, is the primary point. And then it's easy to miss those things when all I see is I must be I must be needing to learn whether or not lying is OK or deceiving is wrong. <laughs> and and again, I just think that's not quite the point. Yeah, let's we'll follow that up because I think that is a good thing for us to get get back into a little bit in the application section. So very good point. Very, very good thoughts. The way that Joseph is actually trying to make them feel as guilty as possible. And he's, mm-hmm. he's actually doing that through his severity, but also through his graciousness towards them. Like he returns their food in full and their rations. So like they leave without lacking anything. I think that's really interesting. And like, that's really how Jesus convicted people and how God convicts people is he reveals his severity. And they understood that based on what, he was saying and accusing them of and also like the return of their money that they deserved severity and that there he would have been warranted and so they were really scared but at the same time the intention of joseph i think is to make them feel guilty but also to reveal to reveal a degree of grace and i think that's like romans 11 behold the goodness and severity of god you know like we we really can't we really can't understand god if you know, we don't appreciate both of those qualities. Um, and I think that's that's overall in like Genesis and the theme of revealing the covenant. If I can't, I, I can't truly appreciate what God's covenant is unless unless I understand personally both his goodness and severity, which I think maybe plays into the into the comprehension fundamentally of both grace and mercy as God gives it. He he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Um, right, you know it's that aspect. I, I think this is jo- Joseph is being godlike. He is he's being like God here in the sense that right, uh, you know things aren't cool between us. You know things are not right between us. But hey, you know here's this blessing. Here I'll, I'll give you this. You know, 
Right. And, and, and there is that aspect where I think God still works like that today to some degree. You know, evil men are greatly blessed sometimes. Uh, and, right. and even if they don't uh, appreciate that, you know, uh, so no, very, very well said. Very good point. Something about Joseph and the process of like holding, having to get Benjamin somehow and like the brothers go back in phases and. I feel like there's some foreshadowing in all of that of how Jesus worked redemption for all mankind. Um, And I don't know if it's that Jesus fulfills both the type of Joseph, but Jesus is also a type of all his brothers having to go, having to go into the household of where, where the, the, uh, the one is that's still being held back to rescue him and having, having to make the necessary sacrifice in order to do that um, as Judah and Reuben both state. Um, I just feel like Jesus is the fulfillment of like every component of this story in so many ways. And uh, I just think there's, there's, there's things worth thinking about there with how Joseph, how Joseph works to get Benjamin back. His only, his only brother of his mother, you know, um, kind of like God working to win Israel, the, the foremost of God's promise. But at the same time, he still, he gets the Gentiles, but he gets the Jews first and then the Gentiles. Uh, and I don't know if it's that the Gentiles are actually the original since Jews came after Gentiles. I don't know. Just things worth, worth thinking about. The love that Jacob has toward his son's Again, you know, of course, parallels, not parallelizes, but parallels with uh, with the love that God obviously has for all of us and the love that that's a great the love that brought Jesus to the cross. I mean, what it's wonderful. What happened? You know, I mean, the calamity that befalls us is our sin. You know, look at the last verse. Mm. But befalls us is sin. And uh, so. In grief and sorrow, God took that to the cross and made it right. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm stretching there, but just a little interesting to me. No, I think I think that's really good because, like, I wonder if that even gives us insight into God's heart. That like, it's almost like Jesus was the the truly beloved, like the last son that God really had. In a sense, really his only son, but harm befell him on his journey. And I, I, I just, I don't appreciate how hard it was for God to destroy Jesus on the cross the way he did. I just, I don't, I don't feel the impact of God's emotion and what he did to Jesus. Um, Cause like God's the one who gives life to the body. You know, he's the one who, through whom we live, move and breathe. So in a sense, like God had to purposely, allow each movement that struck his son and he had to withhold he had to withhold himself from stopping it by the power that he had to strike the people who were striking his son so it's almost like god himself had to be willing to strike his son and to allow everything that that accomplished that purpose so so i don't know just just the 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 sorrow of the father for the harm to come to his son i think it's it's definitely an interesting thing to think about like you were saying
So with our final section on application, of course, we want to look at these things and consider what we can glean from this uh, for our lives and to improve our lives as servants and disciples of Jesus. And uh, I do want to say something that's related to what we were talking about just a few minutes ago, is that um, we have to be so careful when we are applying Old Testament uh, text. Uh, I think we can come to the wrong conclusion sometimes when we look at the behavior of some of these people and conclude that, well, God must have been okay with that. And I think Bryant covered that very, very well. You know, another example, you know, thinking about the way that Joseph handles this, um, I think this is different than, for example, what, uh, what happens with Samuel. You know, Samuel goes to that one place and God tells him to tell them that you're sacrificing to the Lord. And uh, some people have come to that conclusion, well, it's okay to tell someone you're doing one thing when you're doing something else. And uh, I think that goes to a place that just that text doesn't direct me to personally. But I do want to say, too, that, um, you know, one thing that I think we can understand from this is that I think there are some times where discretion can be best to handle certain situations, Um, Mm. you know, especially issues within a local congregation. I'll tell you what, Brian, I don't, I don't like the thought of someone having problems in a local congregation and then members going out and telling their worldly friends about the problems in that local congregation. What do you think about that? Right. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And so it's, it's not lying to withhold information sometimes. Now, I mean, obviously if someone asks you straight up, don't lie, but, uh, and I think if, if for whatever reason, uh, these brothers asked him straight up, you know, are you Joseph? I don't think Joseph would have lied. Um, but anyway, that's, that's not really, again, not really the point of this. Um, you know, just thinking about this though, Joseph does have a very clear test here. Um, and, and there are a number of things that we can apply from this. Um, there's a test here in terms of, uh, I think some ways we can pull from this is that, you know, there's a test of fellowship. If someone, if if someone or, or a family comes into a congregation and wants to place membership, wants to be a part, join themselves to that group, is literally what the term is, just like Paul did in Acts 9, uh, then there are certain things that we can do to ensure that, uh, that at least for our consciences, uh, that everything is clear. And, uh, right. you know, really just two questions that I've heard are, are pretty good, uh, overall questions is, you know, number one, what was your salvation experience? And that's, that's of course needed to determine what, you know, what kind of quote unquote salvation did they have, you know, and don't coach them or anything like that. And then of course the second one would be, uh, have you ever been married before? And, uh, you know, both of those are not extremely invasive questions, but it is a sense where we're having that conversation and really willing to look at those things. And of course, um, you know, Joseph was willing to test his brothers. He was willing to put them to the test. He was willing to put them to the test for forgiveness. If someone is seeking my forgiveness for a wrong that's been done, um, I'll tell you that, that, that should be something where we immediately forgive. But, uh, I'll tell you there, there's an aspect where, uh, we have to understand that, um, that some brethren may not be ready to trust you in those certain situations. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, Bryant, but I mean, I, I think that when someone has betrayed trust, uh, you forgive it and you deal with it as quickly as possible. If that person obviously is repentant, 
you know, there's going to be some time where they lose some influence there and they should have an expectation to, you know, whatever the situation is to prove certain things like the husband that cheats on his wife. Um, you know, he should be expected to prove certain things, whether that means that whenever his phone rings and his wife is calling him, he picks up the phone immediately, or he lets him, lets her know where she is and things like that to have that accountability. Um, I don't know. That was two different things that I dealt with there, Bryant, but, um, I'd love to know your thoughts on either one, the other, whatever. (laughs) That's, I think that's a great thing to bring up and think about. I think there's probably, there's probably like a few different angles to think about that in that are all good angles. Um, and I, 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 I do have a couple thoughts. I don't, I don't, I don't know if they're, helpful but um you you do see the idea i think of some of the things that you're saying in second corinthians particularly um it's probably in more places in the new testament where like these words and terms aren't explicitly being used and and those places can be a little bit harder to discern you just sometimes like there are patterns of behaviors in scripture that exceed repetition of words. So like what I mean is sometimes you can tell where there's a pattern because the same language is being used in different places. And it it helps you perceive that, Oh, okay. Okay. There's a, there's a similarity here that I can begin to put together, but more difficult. I think sometimes is there are patterns in scripture of intention and heart that exist beyond consistency of, of language. Um, and those are incredible parallels to find and, and they're everywhere. But what I'm saying is this is not one of those deep parallels. This is just one of those simple ones. So second Corinthians chapter two, verse nine, uh, he says, for to, to this end, I wrote so that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. Um, so that's interesting. Um, Paul wrote them a letter to test whether they were obedient in all things. And then in there's another one in Second Corinthians in chapter nine. While uh, you're looking at that, let me just plug in that, you know, what is it? Second Thessalonians, uh, test all things, hold fast to what's good. Oh, there's a, yeah, that's good. That's good. So, I mean, there's the general, uh, command there for us to hold to the test, all these things. And I think, I think there's something that's missing there, Brian, not to get in the way of your comment there, but I think there's something that's missing in that thought in the religious world today that, that we should just immediately open, open our arms and welcome everyone with open arms, no questions, no Mm -hmm. searching out, uh, no testing, you know, we have to be really careful about that because in some ways, sometimes we're just inviting trouble when we do that. And, uh, and we know that right. God tests us. God, God looks at us in these ways. He doesn't tempt us. He doesn't put evil before us, but he allows us to be tempted. Right. And in some ways he's testing right. all of his right. faithful people. And I think that really touches to the point that I'm, I'm personally seeing in second Corinthians and it's chapter eight, actually verse 22 says we have sent with them, our brother whom we often, whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things, but now even more diligent 
because of his great confidence in you. Um, it says, we have often tested and found diligence in many things. So I think when you put together that 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 verse in chapter two, and then this one in chapter eight, I think Paul was acting in a consistent way with God's character, like you were saying, and working to build a constantly growing sense of mutual confidence, mutual confidence, and and a spiritual mutual confidence. And I, that, that, that to me is something that is extremely hard to understand how to apply, but I perceive it to be extremely important because it seems like that way of thinking toward brethren and our relationships together cultivates a constant sense of growth and focus that our, our relationship is built on the cornerstone of Christ as the reason for our fellowship. And so I think with without that that testing and that maybe sometimes giving of responsibility and the hope that somebody arises to a task or, you know, because I, I think there's 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 two angles and one angle is wrong. One angle is you're testing someone because you're putting yourself in the seat of a judge and you yourself are trying to of yourself determine whether or not somebody and, has and a good And you're using heart. your own standards I, I, to, to get there. Right. Right. And I, I don't think that's the idea. I think it's more that you are desiring to have confidence in your brethren, but it's more actually for their sake. And it's, it's with a careful perception, a very humble and careful perception of what do they need in order to grow in their faith. And to grow, the reality is we need to be pushed sometimes. And, and I think like chapter eight, verse 22 here, oftentimes we need to be pushed. But somebody of sincerity will desire to be pushed. They will respond well to being pushed. And when they are pushed and they respond well, fellowship will grow. And so when somebody rejects or is offended by the push of greater fellowship, the push of greater growth, the push of greater intimacy, I think we've got a problem with really understanding the nature of, of our faith in the gospel. You um, mentioned you that, think, like, Steve? and you bring up Second Corinthians, which I think is fantastic because what are what are the members in Corinth doing? They're apparently listening to people who think right. that Paul is not really right. an apostle, and uh, right. And so, it, it that's kind of interesting too because uh, he he allows himself to be put to the test totally and openly. He says in in chapter six, mm. "Our heart is mm. open to you. We've right. not withheld right. anything from yeah. you." Uh, and, and, mm -hmm. but he says, That's you're, so you're restrained in your own bowels. You're restrained in yourself, in your deepest parts. You're not where you need to be. You don't have the open arms. Mm -hmm. You're withholding yourself from mm -hmm. that fellowship. And I, I wonder how That's much so that really, uh, exists today. You know, I, I would hope that, uh, at least among, uh, faithful churches, I would hope that that would be less that, that, that you know lessened in the sense that that we know that that what we've inherited we know the greatness of the kingdom and we know uh the the price that God has paid for us and we know uh the truth of these things but but I I'm afraid that that generally it seems like maybe we're the same as <laughs> sometimes as most of the religious world that that we go to church we do our thing and then our life is separate it, separate mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I, I keep my life right. in this box 
and my church life in this other box. And there's no blending between there's no, you know, right. Um, we need to be really, really careful about that and being willing to be open and, and, and honest with each other and, and honest with ourselves and genuine with ourselves. And, and, and I think being willing to be tested is, is, is part of that. Yeah. I, I, th- I think another place that I just thought of that I think relates to this idea. And here's, and here's one of those connections that I think is more the, the heart and the intention, not, not necessarily the, the language. But I think this is the same idea in Colossians 1 verse 28. Uh, he said, we proclaim him admonishing every man, and some translations will say warning every man, and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. And I think the idea there is Paul is working to constantly push those within his sphere of connection to grow and grow and grow because we're, we're, we're striving not just to, toward some form of adequate or achieved fellowship with God, we are pressing each other to gain the complete measure that's still ahead of us in learning and growing in wisdom. And, and I love how he says we're doing this with all wisdom. And so he's being very thoughtful about where people are, what they understand, uh, the sensitivity maybe of personalities. And, and, but, but he's with, with all of that in mind, still warning and teaching every man for the goal of making every man complete. You know, one other thing I wanted to touch on, and this will this will really be all that I have to say as far as points. And Brian, you fill in the end if you like. But, uh, uh, you know, one other thing to think of here is that Je- uh, Joseph had faithfully been with God all this time, despite enslavement, despite mistreatment, despite injustice, mm-hmm. despite imprisonment despite being forgotten about, um, he had stood with God on his own. Maybe we need to think about how standing on my own with God can help me to be prepared to face those who have previously Mm. persecuted me. Mm. Because, you know, Here's the thing, if my faith is is resting with my family, if my faith is resting just with my church, right? Um, and I get into these situations, and I think Christians fall into these situations. They get into a discussion with somebody, and maybe they don't know exactly what to say. And that's okay. That doesn't mean that you're wrong. It doesn't mean that you're not right with God. It just means you get need to get back into the Word and study some more and get to where you can have an answer. Uh, study to show yourself approved to God. So, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure where to go with that, except that, you know, obviously Joseph in all this time, he, he stood on his own, uh, with God. And of course he wasn't alone really. When you think about it, uh, we can be the same way. We can stand with God so that, uh, he looks upon us with that mercy and grace. And he he'll, he'll appreciate, he'll bless you for all the ways that you're being. And, uh, and he'll be there with you when you face those hard times and you'll be better prepared for it. Yeah. That just really reminds me of Paul's attitude. Well, not even just his attitude, but his, his way of seeing Jesus in second Timothy four sixteen through 18, so that's where he says, at my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. 
but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So I think you definitely see in that, that, you know, Paul in first and second Timothy reminds Timothy of the value of the brethren and the, the refreshing encouragement that brethren provide that is so good and necessary. But I love how he ends second Timothy because he, he begins in chapter one talking about, uh, Onesiphorus in chapter one, verse 16, who found and refreshed him. But at the end of the letter, it's like Paul saying, as much as I appreciate what the brethren give by the grace of God, ultimately, ultimately, if we have to be abandoned and left on our own, and when the brethren even fail us, we can still show great mercies to those who we wish were there, but just either aren't or can't be. And the trust that we can have in the Lord is that he is a God who delivers. He's a God who is close. He's a God who can sustain and rescue us in a very present way. And I I just really think that last exhortation to Timothy really impacted him because Timothy, I think, would face times, as we all do, when our trust really has to be completely placed in the Lord in order for us to continue to glorify him in our circumstances, whatever they may be. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's something to to think about too in terms of you know obviously appreciating the fact that you're able to get help and and comfort and and get strength from your fellow Christians. Uh we need to appreciate that while we have it because you know we're right. we're going to lose some of those people someday, you know, in this life, whether it's death, whether it's, you know, whatever happens. Um and so we need to stand on our own. We need to be willing to, you know, I was, I was great friends with an older fellow who, who passed away a couple of years ago, very good, good friend of mine, uh, Aubrey Ballou. And, uh, you know, there are still some days where I wish that I could call him up, but you know, and, and it's easy, you know, it's easy to have people around like that to call up. And I still have people I can call up about things like that, but I mean, you know, we have to stand on our own. And that means having the scriptures, having the knowledge that God wants us to have, having the wisdom that God wants us to seek after. And uh, and we can all do that. Uh, every one of us can trust in God to the point that we know that whatever happens, whoever we lose, no matter how hard things get, we can stand for him. And we'll be blessed for that. I think not just in the eternal sense, but even here in this life. Well, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. We hope it was useful for you. Uh, again, check out our websites and things like that, uh, that we'll have, uh, at the in bumper music of the program. And, uh, we're so thankful for you taking the time. Brian, thank you for the time. No, again, it's just such a joy. It's so good to learn with you, Stephen. And I hope the listener is, found something useful. Absolutely. Well, next time, Lord willing, we'll be looking into Genesis 43. Until that time, study well and be lights to God's glory.
The music on this podcast is provided courtesy of Symphonia. Visit their website at symphonia.com. Walking Through the Book is created and promoted with the support of the North Columbus Church of Christ in Columbus, Mississippi. Find out more at northcolumbuschristians.com. The website of the Garden City Church of Christ in Savannah, Georgia is gardencitycoc.org.